back to the Cycling Tips podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. It is June 13th. Hope you enjoyed last week's kind of special episode, something a bit different. My sit down with Rupert Guinness ahead of his, well, his, his first attempt at the race across America, which actually kicks off tomorrow, Tuesday, June 14th. He is, he's ready to go. And, uh, I mentioned this on the pod last week, but there's a bunch of different ways you can follow him. Go check out his Instagram, rupert.guinness. And then we'll be putting a story up today where you can watch his dot as he goes across America. He had a bit of a snafu with his bike on the way to to California, on the way to San Diego. Broke a seat stay. Trek hooked him up with a new bike. He's good to go. So he he will be making the start line in San Diego tomorrow. If you missed that episode, go check it out. It's uh, yeah, it's something a bit a bit different from the podcast here, but I hope you all enjoyed it. Today we're getting back into a normal episode of the podcast. We've got a little crew here to chat through what's going on in the world of bikes. Shoddy Dave, you're just back from a little trip up to Scotland, aren't you? Yeah, I've been up in Kits neck of the wood. I went up to Aberdeenshire. Went, popped up to see how the Queen's getting on in uh, Balmoral. Got a road trip in peace coming to the site in the near future, around that way. And, I, oh man, I feel like a right muppet. I used to live like six-hour drive from there, and I don't know why I've never been up there. And I regret it big style because it's amazing riding up there. And the foods are good. And I discovered butteries for all our Scottish <laughs> listeners, which is one of the greatest breakfast things ever. A, a buttery? Yeah, buttery? I don't know why they're called butteries because apparently the main ingredient's lard. So it's lard, butter, flour, and a pinch of salt just for the flavour. And it's glorious. Kit, can you confirm? Um, I am lactose averse. So. Oh, <laughs> excuses, <no>. excuses. <laughs> uh, well, keep an eye out on the site for that. I'm, I'm, you know, these road tripping things were kind of a they were a big part of what cycling tips did for a long time and a big part of what people liked about us. And uh, for obvious reasons, they were a little bit hard to do during the pandemic. So I'm glad they're coming back. I'm glad that, uh, I'm glad that you were up there checking out the butteries, shoddy. Butteries, the scones, haggis, of course, the tunics, tea cakes, job lot. <laughs> Well, you heard Kit there just a second ago. Kit, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. And Ronan. I can't stop saying buttery biscuit base to myself now. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody this side of the Atlantic might know what I'm talking about, but probably lost on anybody else. I have no idea what you're talking about. I I sampled some of your stuff as well, Ronan. I flew into Dublin to get home. Aberdeen, Dublin, Dublin, Beirut. So I had a a bag of tatoes. Oh, I thought you were going to say you had a pint of Guinness. No. <laughs> Tato crisps. Mm, you'll have to come back for the Guinness then. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's get into today's episode. We've got quite a lot to talk about. We, you know, Dauphiné wrapped up over the weekend. Tour de Suisse is kicking off. We've got a little bit more relegation chat. I know we keep promising we're not going to talk about this, but there's just more interesting things that keep popping up about it. So we're going to talk about it. And in particular, a story that Kit wrote over the weekend about, well, just the, the absurdity of the point system here and how 
some relatively innocuous uh, wrongdoings can can lose you as many points as a hard-fought podium at a relatively large bike race, uh, or at least, what, top five, something like that. Anyway, we'll get into the details of that in a little bit. We're also going to talk Baby Giro. The, the U23 version of the Giro d'Italia is on right now, and this is always a, a really interesting place to, to spot new talent uh, or to confirm talent. It's actually really probably what it's better for. Uh, you know, I think that American listeners out there will probably remember that Joe Dombrowski has had some great rides there. Fabio Aru, actually those two, had a, a bit of a duel. Like this is, must be almost 10 years ago now. It is always a race that, that pops up some, some fresh new talent and today's stage uh which just wrapped up sort of shortly before we hit record here at 5000 meters of climbing over what 170 180 kilometers it was a monster so we'll talk about that in a little bit as well and in today's nerd nugget ronan is going to talk us through all the new bikes that we're expecting to see or already have seen in the lead up to the Tour de France, it is that time of year. It is bike launch season right now. Our embargo list grows by the day. <laughs> Things that are going to be rolling out over the next couple of weeks. So we'll tell you what we can tell you. Uh, what we are not under NDAs <laughs> cannot tell you. We'll tell you what we can tell you uh, at the end of today's show. Let's kick off with the Dauphiné. Now, of course, Dauphiné, Tour de Suisse, the sort of traditional lead-in races to Tour de France. Uh, they often overlap this year. They only overlap by, what, one day. Um, sometimes they overlap by more, actually. But, you know, we often see that the, the, the Tour de France contenders kind of split themselves up here, head to different races. Uh, as Johnny wrote on the site this morning, you know, are they are they avoiding each other? Yeah, kind of a little bit. I mean, you don't necessarily want to show your rivals exactly where you are two and a half, three weeks ahead of, of the Tour de France or two weeks ahead of the Tour de France. But there's also just there's other reasons to to pick one or the other, right? I mean, for example, the, the Yumbo Visma fellows that were all at the Dauphiné last week, they're headed straight back to altitude as soon as that race wrapped up. Uh, so get one more altitude camp in ahead of Tour de France. They had a pretty good week, didn't they, Kit? They had a pretty solid week those Yumbo Visma bike racers. They certainly did. Yeah. I mean Wout Van Aert was obviously the uh, star player for the first well five days at least. Um with one blip with the uh uh early celebration. Um but then yeah the weekend it was over to the G C guys and uh Roglic and Vingago just ripped it up. Um and they were pretty much untouchable. Um, came away with one, two overall, and Vingegaard uh, winning the last stage hand in hand with Roglic. So yeah, it was quite something. The the whole entire Yumbo Visma squad was just insane yesterday. The way they like decimated the field on that final, well, controlled it for most of the stage, kept a fairly strong breakaway in in uh, well under control, and then just on that final climb. Uh, just blew the race race to pieces, you know. When I think when Roglic and and Vinegard attacked on, there was only a couple of riders left, and they're wheeling. Ben O'Connor made the best, you know, attempt at, at holding on to him and was massively impressive. You know, I know he was was he fourth in last year's Tour de France, but it you know yesterday's ride or this year's his, his rides this year in general, including at the Volta Catalunya, that have 
arguably more been more impressive than his fourth place in the tour last year and he looks on course to to go well also but to go back to my point about Jumbo Visma you know by the, by the time Vinigo and Roglic attacked it it was already almost like a done deal it, it was like yeah and and it was the kind of attack that was just yeah it, it, it sort of it was it was just insane to watch it you know the speed that they took off compared to everybody else behind them was was just unreal yeah i mean they they attacked off the uh back of Christwick's last attempt and by the time i mean if you look at the uh footage um even by the time Christwick was done pretty much only Ben O'Connor was hanging on and then they didn't give anyone a chance to to i don't know get back up to them and it was just an insane acceleration i had a friend text me uh, it, it seemed to be an exasperated text. Maybe I was reading into the into the text. I don't know. You can't you can't read emotion, right? But it seemed exasperated uh, by the sort of dominance that Yumba Visma was showing at the Dauphiné. And my response to him, and my response to to people who think that is, I think that I think this is what we want right now, right? Like we've got Tadej Pogaccia over in Slovenia at the moment. He he does the tour of Slovenia as a, as a bit of a warm up. I assume that there's going to be some some altitude camps in there somewhere for him as well. But, I mean, he is the favorite coming into this Tour de France. And if you have a favorite as dominant as Pogacar has been over the last two years, don't you want the team that is up against him to be as dominant when he's not around? I mean, it feels to me like this is the best chance we have for, for a real GC battle is if we've got Vingigo and Roglic. Just yeah. firing on all cylinders, right? I mean, it looked like a dress rehearsal. It it was almost like a dry run, or a, uh, I don't know, a tech run at the big challenge in uh, July. Um, and you know, the, all the looking behind that Vingegaard was doing just to see how much more they needed to do. Um, and then, like Ren was saying, the whole team just doing everything they could because they didn't need to go away and get loads of time. Um, Roglic was already 40 seconds ahead of Vingegaard in second. So they didn't need to do anything. They, but they were, but what they could do was for themselves exercise a plan for, for July. And who do we think looked the stronger of the two? To me, it was Vingegaard looked the, the better of them. I know Roglic ended up winning the GC by 40 seconds or whatever, but, you know, fast forward to July and if Vingegaard is the strongest rider again, could that be? actually a, a problem in the making for Jumbo Visma and then throw into the mix Wout van Aert who wants to go for the green jersey this year and wants the freedom to to go for it it you know yes I 100% agree I, I think it's exactly what we need to get an exciting race against Pogaccia at the moment but is there too many uh chefs in the Jumbo Visma kitchen there um well I think yeah I mean that was a I would agree that Vingegaard was did look the stronger um uh, but he was he was definitely riding like he was playing a support role, I think, yesterday. But yeah, he did look at the finish like he had plenty left. Um, and yeah, I mean, they, they were both talking like uh, one of us is going to, we want one of us to win. Um, when, you know, they don't, they're not interested in replicating it uh, one after the other sort of result in uh, the tour. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it echo, there are echoes to me of the Froome Wiggins situation but I think these guys get on better which is probably only a good thing and they can just see who has the best legs on the day maybe 
I definitely agree with you there about the team. The team definitely does feel uh, a lot more gelled, a lot more, a lot more of a friendlier environment. If if we can just go from sort of the comments made after the stages and what they do on social media. Um, but as you say, it does hark back to sort of eras of, yeah, the, the Froon Wiggins situation. But we've seen teams before go into, whether it's the Dauphiné or Swiss, dominate with a, a rider and then come to the tour and they not be as strong, e- either of them be as strong as they are at the Dauphiné, at the tour. Even though, yeah, they are firing on all cylinders, it's a, a question of can they keep this up? until uh, Denmark when the, the tour rolls out of there. I mean, Jumbo Visma strikes me as a team that is not going to run in the into the sort of personality conflict, uh, ego-driven issues that some others might. They feel a little bit like they run a bit of a tighter ship over there. I mean, ego is ego at the end of the day. And, 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 you know, you cannot, a director sportif cannot physically change the way that a rider is going to react to things. But... In general, that team seems to be a little bit, well, just run a bit tighter than that. I, I mean, I think back to like to the Sky Wiggins Froome days, right? When when it was quite clear throughout the Wiggins Tour de France that Froome was at moments the stronger of the two, but the sort of the the the, the strength of that team and the power of of the directors. Uh, you know, Portal and all the rest sort of holding that team together and making sure that even though Froome probably knew in the back of his head, I could maybe win the Tour de France. He didn't. Right. And, and they, they, they continued to work for the single, the single goal that they had come into this race with. I get the sense that that is what Yumbo Visma will, will likely try to do. That said, if Wiggins had faltered back then, Froome was sort of ready. I think the same thing is, is true of Yumbo Visma at the Tour de France this year, which is, Roglic feels like number one to me. I agree with Kit that 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 Jonas Vingergo was was riding for him at the Dauphiné. That is that's val- that's relevant. However, you still got the guy that came in second last year as your backup. That's a pretty solid backup, and I think that they won't be afraid to to flip that switch if they need to. I think they're very. It's a very pragmatic team over there, and that's a big part of the reason why they've had so much success over the last couple of years. I watched their. Was it Plan B, the documentary that came out there? And it came out a while ago, but it came out in English recently. And I watched it last week. And although admittedly I fell asleep for a bit in the middle of it, uh, <laughs> I, I, I do remember one point where... A glowing they, review, a glowing <laughs> review. <laughs> uh, I do remember there was one section in the middle of it where they were discussing the team's plan going forward. Van Aert had just won the Von Two stage. Uh, Vinigo was already second overall. It was before the Andorra stage and they were sort of saying that the likes, the four riders that they had left, including Sepkus and uh, I think it was Kreuzweg also, you know, in, in this sort of director's meeting between stages, they were discussing amongst themselves that the other riders on the team hadn't shown the level yet. First and foremost had to be Vinigo's GC, and they were just making the hard decision there and then that as much as these guys might want to go for stages, we're going to tell them that what they're doing is working for Vinigo. Now, Fast forward 24 hours and Sepkus did go on a breakaway and did win the Andorra stage. So take from that what you what you will. But 
I just, yeah, it, it sort of well, the, the the details of that matter, which is that he was very much in that position also in case he needed to drop back, right? Mm-hmm. And and I believe that wasn't Waffenert also in that breakaway. Who, he was. Yeah. He had a teammate in that breakaway. Yeah, I'm trying to think back to the stage now. So he had a teammate in that breakaway who did drop back, and so so I, I feel like they even then they were prepared to they were prepared to pull the plug on Seth winning a stage on that even on that day. <laughs> I couldn't help but wonder yesterday, well, when I was putting together the analysis, at least, looking at Kreiswick on the front on that last climb and Roglic just a couple of wheels behind him and wondering if that's his future. Because I think if Roglic doesn't win this Tour de France or isn't the leader of this Tour de France, that's it. Because I mean, by that I mean if Vingegaard is the leader by the third week of the Tour de France. I think Roglic, you know, he's, what, 32 uh, he's that'll be. I think that'll be it for his Tour de France leadership with Vingegaard on the same team. Either that or Israel start up national snap him up. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think that's a good point. And that you know, Roglic even showed a bit of sense of humour yesterday, where he joked in the post race interview about I finally won a race in France. And yeah, he made a couple of other jokes now, but I can't remember the rest of them. That was just the one that springs to mind. But I I do think you know. Part of the problem for Jumbo Visma will be the amount of issues that he has had in the past, and compare that to Vinigo's seemingly, you know, much more uh, reliable. And and you know, a lot of it comes down to the luck of bike racing, but undeniably, as far as I'm concerned, Vinigo was a stronger rider yesterday. He did ride for for Roglic, but if you line those two up in the Tour de France, and Roglic isn't a stronger climber. What happens when Vinigo makes that same attack? You know, Roglic can't follow him then. He can't, you know, Roglic has to play on the time trials and Vinigo has to play in the climbs. And it's those two contrasting tactics that I think are going to potentially lead to problems for, for Jumbo Visma. Of course, then throw into the mix Tadej Pogaccia. And if he's climbing better than both the Jumbo Visma riders, you know, all of a sudden you could go from this scenario where as impressive as Jumbo Visma have been this weekend past, they could go into the Tour de France with with huge issues, and although they you know they run a tight ship there, I, I, you know I just I, I'm sort of curious to see how it will actually unfold in July when you then also throw in a favourite for the green jersey. The problem with Vingegaard is he's also a great time trialist. Um, he was second. He was you know very close to Pogacar in the time trials at last year's Tour de France. So he is the fully rounded rider like Roglic. But what was interesting, I mean, it was almost quite nerve-wracking moment at the finish line yesterday when Vingegaard was so ready to raise his arms and hold hands with Roglic and Roglic looked like the less good bike handler at least, really didn't feel comfortable with taking his hands off the bars. And, you know, I'm a big fan of Roglic, uh, but he he looked really uncomfortable on the bike at that. And it just kind of made, yeah, Vingegaard look like the slightly more... You're- you're making faces, Katie, but I, I agree here. It was it was sorta of nervous to watch where Roglic definitely left it to like, how late can I leave this to to actually lift my hand off the bar? And we do know he's not the world's most gifted bike handler. You know, he has struggled with yeah, that. But riding previously. with a right I learned how to ride without my hands when I was eight. I, I, I don't think I, I'm certainly not, and I don't think Kit is saying that he can't ride without his hands. He can do that, and he's probably a better bike rider than I am. Yeah. <laughs> but he's definitely a better bike rider than I am. But I'm just my point is, in the past, these issues have have come up to, to yeah. bite him. 
it's a body language thing I was talking about. You know, Vigagod looks like every bit the leader on a bike, every bit the the general classification winner. Um, not saying Roglic doesn't, but next to Vigagod, he looked a little bit less comfortable. I mean, I just think that the, that the way that the team management has probably pitched this to Vingago is this is his last shot. Give give Roglic his last shot, and you're 25, and you have 10 more. <laughs> you know, you have eight more. How, however many more you have, we'll get you a yellow jersey someday. But this is his last shot, and so you need to you need to lay yourself on the line for him. Which who knows if that is an effective means of management but I, I, that has to be what they've told him i would say that's what they've told him but what vinigo has heard is i will wait for my chance to come this year yeah <laughs> you know, I, I will play that part i will toe the line but if my chance comes this year i'm i'm gonna it's like the old story of kelly and roach and apparently they're writing the nissan classic in the 80s and they re- agreed to give each other stages and kelly won the first stage and then he won the second stage, and long story short, Roach goes to him and says, "Well, I thought I was due a stage one." And Kelly's like, "Yeah, but I want two stage ones before you get one." <laughs> <laughs> or, or the or the Ino Le Monde tour. I yes. mean, you know, there's, there's plenty of uh, there's plenty of examples of this back throughout the years. Uh, the Ino Le Monde one is actually probably a sort of a pretty good example. Like it's better than it's better than the Wiggins Froome one, I think. In that, you know, Le Monde was was at that point he. he he wasn't surprising anybody with where he was. And you had a rider who was really quite near the end of his, of his GC era and who just didn't want to relinquish it. Uh, now the difference there, the major difference there is that Bernardino, uh, doesn't care about anyone not named Bernardino. Whereas I'm not, I don't know if Primoz Roglic is quite the, it's quite the same character as the badger uh we haven't give given roglic a similar <laughs> a similar nickname this yet uh he hasn't stopped on the side of the road and punched anybody in a very long time uh not that we has, know of <laughs> not that we know <laughs> that we know of uh, i mean you know, it, that, that you know, Hino, you know sorry that hino le monde that hino le monde rivalry it's well worth going back and checking out the i think it was a out the, the stage that finished at alp d'huez it's at when them two went off the front on their own. It's absolutely, it, it's fantastic to see the body language between the two of them. You can see the content between both of them and how Hino is like trying to play that I'm the team leader, young man. Yeah. Do what I say. <laughs> it's something well, that we definitely, other- we definitely, I, well, I can't say we will see at this, this year's tour, depending on like from the word go, we've got a, uh, 13 kilometer time trial in Copenhagen. I think it, you can see if there's um, Vingegaard outstripping Roglic at there for whatever, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 seconds, you could start seeing problems straight away. Or even if Van Aert, do, like he, he can do a pretty decent time trial, won uh, a few in his time. And if he, he stamps his authority there, you just do not know how the team's uh, going to react to all that. You've got to put, they're all being paid decent money because the team's got a budget of reportedly something like 25 million, but still that's what 20 million shy of what Ineos have to play with. So we will, we will see if money talks or if, um, I'm sorry today, my brain's not working. If, yeah, <laughs> if money works or if, um, what are you talking pers- about, Johnny? <laughs> personal, if money works. 
Oh, if if personal um, results come to fruition, yes. If if uh, I think what you're trying to say is if money motivates them or results motivates them. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm still half asleep from all the travelling. <laughs> You'd be surprised at how. You'll be surprised at how many hours you have to put in on these road trips. If just to your point though, if the time trial doesn't decide it in Denmark, arguably is it the second or the third stage? I think the second stage it goes over that huge bridge uh, with all the predicted yeah. crosswinds and that. You know, if there is any question marks over any GC riders' uh, bike handling abilities or ability to race in echelons and that. You know there could be significant time gaps there, and then fast forward two stages later, you've got the Roubaix stage. So this—it's a gnarly first week. It's it's, it's, a, it's a nasty first week. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we don't need to do a Tour de France preview right now. <laughs> right now, we'll we will do big Tour de France preview before the Tour de France starts. The sort of last thing I, I wanted to say about about sort of the Bernardino Le Mans comparison here is that I mean the other major difference obviously is that. Bernardino and Greg LeMond were the two strongest bike racers in the bike race. Whereas that is probably not the case this July, unless something should happen to Pogacar, basically. And that's gonna that changes things dramatically. And Ronan, you kind of alluded to it earlier, which is that you do have two riders who who they're both pretty well rounded, but they do have have slightly different strengths, right? I mean, Vingago was the only rider to put any distance between himself and Pogacar on a climb last year. Right, Roglic has previously time trialed as well, if not better than Pogacar, and so I, I do think that they need to kind of play on those strengths a little bit, which also again means that potentially letting Finger go go up the road without Roglic, and what does that do to the tactics of the team, and and how do they how do they work all that? Is it a a true two pronged effort? I mean, it could be, it could be where they just go in saying we. You know, it'll it'll play itself out on the road. I can't imagine that that's the way that they really try to set it up, but it could be in the end. I mean, I think it's interesting to look at last year and when Fingergo's uh, role changed um, and looking at, because the gap on the day that um, uh, Roglic went home. Um, so yeah, he crashed a few days before, but uh, from the moment Roglic went home, Vingegaard's gap to uh, Pogacar actually shrunk by something like 15 seconds. Now, that's not taking into account the Grand Bonon stage where Pogacar just went bananas. Um, but, you know, the, he is not going to drop back and lose a couple of minutes to help Roglic out. He will be staying in the GC group. Um, uh, you know, he, he's not going to sacrifice any time just in case. Um, a jump of Ismer involved in the Netflix doc. I don't. I think they are. I can't remember what the list was because UAE said no. But actually, the Jumbo Visma stuff will probably be more interesting than Pogacar if they're involved. I, I've got a feeling they are. I maybe should check. They are. They are in it. Yeah, Jumbo Visma is part of the impending Netflix documentary. Uh, I was just going to yeah. say that you know it's it's clearly not something they're adverse to, um, no. and. and the three of us here in this call, Katie and uh, David and I, found out firsthand how uh, strictly 
Jumbo Visma treat their uh, COVID uh, policy when we were told in no uncertain terms where to go before the start of Paru Bay. Uh, so I was I was very surprised to see the camera crew had access, you know, within the bus, within the hotel, everywhere at last year's tour, where you know arguably they would have been on higher alert. Um, so presumably, you know, going into this year, they're they're going to be more open again. Maybe, you know, maybe both things will happen: Netflix and Plan C this year. Who knows? Your plan. <laughs> Plan A, Plan B. Well, we should we should move on from this topic. We've we've chatted. I mean, that that was effectively our Dauphiné discussion because really the primary the primary takeaway out of the Dauphiné was that Yumbo Visma remains the most terrifying team in pro cycling at stage races. And and like I said at the very start of the show, I think that is a good thing going into July. I think it is. It's our best chance for a close Tour de France, and we and we like a close Tour de France. So we will hope that uh, that everybody stays upright, that everybody gets through that first week, and that we have you know a multi pronged attack on Tata Pogacar's yellow jersey. Just before we leave the Dauphiné, another I know I already mentioned, but Ben O'Connor again is something to look out for at the tour again this year, you know, especially for our Aussie listeners, I guess. Uh, but also everything we just discussed means nothing because Damiano Caruso sneaking in there for fourth place overall in the Dauphiné, clearly on form heading into the tour is going to pull, <laughs> go one better than he did with a surprise assault on the Giro last year. So, Well, that's another two-pronged attack, isn't it? Because wasn't Haig fifth? Yes. Yeah. So Bahrain and Jan Bavisma. Haig after the Dauphiné said, "Yeah, no, top yeah, yeah. five is about all I can hope for." So, and, and that—that's another angle to this. Is you know, Kit, you were talking about how they didn't really need to take time uh, mm-hmm. at the end there, and yet they decided to anyway. That's why, right? They're trying to scare people, and if you can scare people, you might as well scare them. So. Again, before we leave Dauphiné, I'm just looking at the start list because I didn't see loads of it myself. What with having me a up in Scotland, running around there. You, you just look at the start list of the race and it's the, the Jumbo team is the only sort of team that stands out as a genuine um, tour contenders team, like from start to finish. Like all, what, seven riders in there is a genuine tour team. The other the other teams are, you wouldn't, you wouldn't put them in the top, top three, four of a, a tour winning team at all. And that's why, as we say, the the the, the World Tour teams scatter their team leaders throughout Dauphiné, Swiss, and this year as well with um, Tour of Slovenia. Well, that's just that's just Pogacar. That's, that's just yeah. Him hanging out. But yeah, this is it. It's, like, it's a team that, when you just look at it on paper, is not head and shoulders, but maybe just shoulders above every other team which started the Dauphiné. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's not really too surprising that they would be. I mean, like exactly. I said, you want them to be dominant there. They should be dominant yeah. there. They they are the team that most of that team will head to the Tour de France. I mean, the only problem, like likely swap, is I would have to think that Chris Harper probably gets swapped out for for Sepp Kuss or something. It's it's. I mean, it's difficult to say that it, it, it's. Yeah, uh, but it's that was most of their tour team. 
They're, that was unquestionably yeah. most of their tour team. And I mean, that's, th- that's different from the rest of the squads there. There will be one extra because it's seven at Dauphiné and eight at the. Is that right? Yeah, that goes yeah. up to eight for Grand but Tours. Chris Harper, yeah. though, was he? His name was said probably more than anybody else's by the commentary earlier on in the stages. He could be. I mean, it's probably between him, Laporte, and Dennis. Although Dennis apparently has got stomach issues, so he's probably less. But I think Harper, if he, you know, I know he's not a particularly experienced Grand Tour rider, but he did. Really do, uh, do a really good job of auditioning this week. Yeah, I would. I would have to think that Dennis is probably the intention there, but it, it sounds like he's got, like you said, got some got some issues and unlikely to make it. I, I don't know. It's it's hard to say. We're still we're still a couple weeks out, so everything could change at this point. But I, I have to think that you know if a rider is incapable of, for example, making their final their final altitude camp, they're probably then therefore not going to be at the at the start in Copenhagen anyway. We need to move on. We gotta move on from the Dauphiné. Do we have to? <laughs> we do. We have to move on from the Dauphiné. Uh, like I said, we got plenty of time to talk Tour de France uh, over the next couple of weeks. We've got a couple more, couple more weekly episodes before we drop into the daily Tour de France episodes, which we will do just like last year. Uh, yeah, that's gonna be what Ronan, you and Johnny, and Shoddy. From Copenhagen, and then yeah. I show up once. One, <laughs> I show up once things get to France. Ian comes in for a little while. Yeah, we've got a whole, we've got a whole team, and then those dailies will continue as we head into the Tour de France Femme, which overlaps in Paris and then continues for another what seven days. So we've got we've got like thirty days of daily podcasts coming up uh, in July. We got we got lots of tour coming. We got tons of tour coming. Before we move on, we must hear from our good friends at Hammerhead. Shoddy? We do indeed need to hear from our good friends at Hammerhead. Right. Let's talk about the Karoo too. Do you want to get more out of your rides beyond just distance, time, and pace? How about advanced GPS navigation and the ability to see upcoming hills? The Hammerhead Karutu helps you find your path forward and unlock your full potential. Hammerhead's exclusive climber with predictive path technology feature lets you visualize and prepare for upcoming gradient changes in real time with or without a route loaded. So you can confidently see what lies ahead of you, whether it's a steep incline, a windy descent or simply some place new and wonderful waiting to be explored, which is what we all look for, isn't it? For a limited time, our listeners can get a free custom colour kit and an exclusive premium water bottle with the purchase of the Hammerhead Karutu. All you need to do is visit hammerhead.io right now and use the promo code CYCLINGTIPS at checkout to get yours today. So this is an exclusive limited time offer only for our podcast listeners, you lucky people. So don't forget to use the promo code CYCLINGTIPS and you'll get that free custom colour kit and premium water bottle with your purchase of a Karoo too. So yeah, go on, jump on your computers now, tap in hammerhead.io, add all three items to your car and use the promo code cycling tips today. Thank you, Shoddy. And uh, thanks to Hammerhead for sponsoring today's episode. I should also mention as a random aside that they're sponsoring Rupert Guinness's ride across America, I believe. Ba- uh, batteries have got to be very good for that then. Yeah, yeah. I, I think he mentioned that. Pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. Anyway, on with the show. Let's let's turn to our favorite topic. 
promotion or relegation. <laughs> just actually just relegation in this case, in cycling's case. Kit, you, you did a story over the weekend. Um, just some interesting some interesting numbers thrown around here. Uh, and the fact that sort of reinforces or some some numbers that reinforce our view that that this was maybe not the best thought out system uh ever. Things like Warren Barguil getting a was it a twenty five point twenty five point fine fine for chucking a water bottle. Well, which well, is yeah, twenty five points normally. Okay, whatever, twenty five points. But you're talking about particularly the teams at the bottom here. That could literally chucking a water bottle could decide which team ends up in the World Tour next year, and that feels crazy to me. It certainly does. Yeah, what's particularly irritating about that though is that he said that he gave it to a fan. Um, uh, so it's a case of the UCI being the UCI, I guess. I, I think maybe the the five hundred Swiss francs that he also was docked, maybe they had an expensive dinner reservation that night or something. The jury, but the if you look at the, um, the if you look, they make him pay in cash. No, we need that in cash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, because Heath came third that day and got ten points for coming third. Um, so it's mad. But what I think the the more interesting story is that Saturday's stage at the Dauphiné. Wait, wait. So he got 10 points for coming in third. Yeah. And then lost 25 points for giving a water bottle to a fan. Yes. Good job, UCI. Oi, oi, oi. Yeah. Uh All right, sorry, continue. I yeah. was just, I, I wanted to hammer home that that yeah. point of idiocy right there. Yeah. But yeah, like you say, it doesn't really matter to RK Samzik, who are sitting pretty, pretty, uh, but in the uh, top 18. But I mean, if you look at Saturday, for instance, um, at the Dauphiné again, uh, Carlos Verona got his first professional stage win um, from the breakaway, just, um, and won 60 points, um, which is pretty average especially as Enric Mass then called it a day. He'd had a crash, so he's, he was struggling. And obviously from the very, uh, he was very wrapped up from that. Um, but it's, so Movistar's team boss came out at the weekend talking about the relegation situation and uh, how he's calling Valverde back into uh, racing a little bit, or he wants to anyway, to get him back from his Giro break a little bit sooner in order to go and get points at 1.1 races, uh, like the Vontu, Denivale Challenge and Route d'Occitanie, which if, say, he won both, he won Mont Ventoux and the overall without winning a stage at La Route d'Occitanie, which is you know, a reasonable chance. He will win 250 points. And the team took, what, I think uh, 100 points from the Dauphiné, a World Tour stage race, um, which, yeah, just puts into some... Stupid perspective. Um. The the points allocation across the board is just you know it, it just it makes no sense really if you understand cycling. It, it's as if someone who doesn't understand cycling has devised the points here because you know that fine of twenty five points for throwing a water bottle is the equivalent of third place on a stage of the Tour de France. Now I know we all need to take littering seriously, and yes, a five hundred Swiss francs is taking it seriously, but. Finding someone the equivalent of a Tour de France podium on a stage is just ridiculous. And, and what it actually leads to is, as you were saying there with Unze, and as other managers have said also, is that it rewards teams for avoiding the Grand Tours, the biggest races in cycling. 
and it rewards teams instead. Uh, and it's an article I've been trying to write for about two months now. I just can't find the time. But teams like uh, I think I've mentioned it previously as well, like Lotto last year got you know multiple times the amount of points from Tour de Wall Knee than they did from the five stages of Tour de Wall Knee than they did from the three week long Tour de France. And you know you could you could argue that you know maybe they should have got better results in the tour or whatever, or it's because they lost Caleb Ewan or whatever. But still, that a team can go through a three-week Grand Tour, one of the best teams in the sport can go through the Tour de France and score so few points is just, you know, e- even with a good Tour de France, a team could score more points at the Tour de Wallonie, which no disrespect to Tour de Wallonie, a race I love myself and love those roads and all, but it's it's not the same level as the Tour. <laughs> and when you see 25 points for third place, is the equivalent of a fine for throwing a bottle. It just it makes no sense to me. I, I'm just trying to get something in that. That what you've just said, that rattling round my head, got me thinking about the whole UCI ASO rivalry and whether s- some of the point allocation is down to that. So, well, it's UCI actually it's actually less sort of, for yeah trying for, to for screw over the ASO. a zero stage, you're getting twenty points. Uh, so they they do allocate more points to the Tour uh, than they do to the Giro and Vuelta, both for overall wins and individual stage placings. But it's just the the weighting that that just doesn't seem to add up, really. Which is why I think one of the things that Insoe was saying is that actually, and I quote: "If you're in nineteenth or twentieth, you can even end up in a more privileged position. You end up not knowing if it's better to, or worse to finish bottom." So basically, he's saying that you know, if you're nineteenth and twentieth as a pro team, let's say next year, then you can then you get an invite to all world tour stage, world tour races, but you don't have to go. So you can choose, like Arkea Samsic did with the Giro this year, not to turn up. Trouble with Movistar and the idea that they could go down and be nineteenth next year, which they would be, is that they wouldn't have the Swiss Army knife of Valverde to go and swoop in and get points everywhere. I think. They're they're in a difficult situation in that regard because I don't th- I think they would slip off the map pretty quick. The 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 points weighting isn't even my biggest issue with it, and you know arguably if a team like Movistar can't secure the points, then you know should they be World Tour? And the answer is probably no. You know equally the system that has worked in the past, where if you have enough money, you'll be in Cycling's top division, isn't exactly perfect either. Far from it actually. But the, the biggest issue I have with it is that we have this relegation system in place now, but there is no actual, and I really don't want to go down this rabbit hole again, but you know, apart from a guaranteed invite to the Tour de France, there is nothing to guarantee that you will, as a team, be in a better place, more, be better financially or more stable from being in the World Tour. We've seen countless World Tour teams lose their sponsors, just like we've seen pro uh Pro teams lose their their sponsors and go bust as a result. And the you know the the promotion relegation thing. And again, not comparing to other sports because that comparison doesn't work. But at least in other sports where it exists, there's you know there's guaranteed increases in revenue for the teams both getting promoted and relegated, sort of securing their status no matter which direction they go. Whereas it seems to be now that the we could end up in a situation where teams getting promoted actually decide to decline the promotion and the teams getting relegated end up, you know, it, it forcing them out of business effectively. It's all dumb. Agreed. 
<laughs> we're just we're just highlighting that for everybody once again. It's just highlighting. It's the very dumbness. difficult, yeah, to you know to really do this topic justice. I think you know without dedicating an hour long podcast to it in itself, but it's important that we. Well, there's there's so yeah there's so much context around it and the and it essentially it comes down to like the way that these teams are funded and all these other things. I mean, you're exactly right, Ronan, in that you know none of these teams are getting two hundred million dollar payments from broadcast revenue because there is no two hundred million. There's there's barely that much to to share around with everybody. I mean, ASO's annual revenue is only about two hundred forty million, I believe. And that includes like the Dakar rallies and things that aren't even cycling. That's just revenue. So, so, so profit is obviously going to be significantly less than that. You're talking about even if they did a, a broadcast rev share agreement, you're talking about like a million bucks per team, two million bucks per team, something like that. Like it's just, it's nothing, right? It is for teams that, for teams with a with a budget of eleven million bucks. Okay, it's not nothing. For for your Ineos, it is literally nothing. It is it is you know they don't need it, they don't want it. Uh, yeah, there's there's no use there. So the whole thing is just it's built on really rickety on a really rickety system on a really rickety foundation, and and so you can't just sort of layer this stuff on top, particularly if it's done as as poorly as it has been. Uh, yeah, some broader things to to sort of fix there. There's actually um there's a piece that just came in from uh, Steve Maxwell at the Outer Line. It's, it's a review of a book about the Amaris, the as, as an Amaris sport organization, as in the family. I was just reading through the copy the other day. We're going we're gonna to have it up on the site this week. And it's, it's an interesting, even just the review of the book, I haven't had a chance to read the book yet, but even just the review of the book includes a lot of really interesting little tidbits on how, essentially how the Amory family and how ASO operate and how, uh, it's just had this massively outsized impact on the way that cycling has always looked and their reluctance to kind of take some things forward that other sports have done, you know, sort of broader, bigger broadcast agreements, all these other things that could potentially kind of alter cycling pretty dramatically, you could argue for better or for worse. They've been very reticent to, to do. And so a lot of this stuff comes back to like the number one player in the sport, ASO, doesn't want to do a lot of these things. And so the, the, the UCI can layer whatever they want on top, borrowed from other sports, promotion, relegation, you know, closed system, open system, whatever you want to, whatever you want to do, franchise systems that like Jonathan Vodders has talked about. You could try to layer that stuff on as much as you want, but the underlying economics of it are fundamentally really different, essentially because ASO likes them how they are, because the Amory family pulls out 30 million bucks a year from that company and pays themselves very well uh and that's just the, that's the as, as, it's their company that's what that's that's how this works but that's just that's the that's the reality so let's move on from relegation and i do apologize for even bringing it up <laughs> once again well it's, it's just that it's affecting the way that it's raced the cycling is yeah, actually it's the stories are yeah, yeah that's all I, that's the only reason i have to i engage with it this weekend was how it was affecting the race it's yeah it's affecting which riders are at which races and which what teams are doing and all sorts of things and and yeah it's a it's a it's an externality we haven't had to deal with previously is it what really great for me personally with the whole system as well is that it's not a yearly thing it's like this is the first year it's happening so people are getting to grips with how it's going to work but yeah it's a case of 
what is it, a, a two or a three year cycle now that they're going to be going through? A four year? No, three. Three, sorry, three. That's... Sorry. I'm, <laughs> this is why I've got glasses on, Kit. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it, it, that's what cracks me. It's like, this is the first year. People are going to be getting a grips of it. Teams are going to be getting a grips of it, knowing how things are going to be working. They've been getting deducted 25 points for throwing a bottle. He's not going to be the only one alone there, I'm guessing, throughout the season. And little points like that add up. And yeah, teams are going to be like, you, you can't be doing this. You can't be doing that. You can do this. You can't do that. You must go to this race. We can't go to that race. And then it's going to be a case of things are going to sort of bed down. People are going to maybe not forget, but not get to grips with how how to set the season up, how to set the calendar out as a team to get these points. And then three years down the line, we're going to have probably similar situation, maybe not as bad, but very similar situation yet again. Yep. Cutting it off. We're done. No more, no more relegation talk <laughs> in this episode. We'll come back to it, I'm sure. <laughs> but, but we are done with the relegation talk. I want to talk about something a lot more positive. I want to talk about the next generation of incredible bike racers. I want to talk about the U23 Giro, the baby Giro, as they call it. Uh, and what, we're just getting we're just getting results in from today. That, that the stage that I mentioned earlier, the 170, 180 kilometer, whatever it was, 5,000 meter day. Uh, and well, the last name of this rider might likely, I think, be, be familiar to our audience out there. Leo Hayter, a, uh, a Brit for Action Hagen's Berman, just took the victory in that stage. That's his second stage win in a row. Kit, you know a bit of, of Hayter's backstory. And, and of course, uh, his older brother, Ethan, is a name that I think our, our listeners will be aware of. So yeah, Leo, Leo Hayter, young lad from uh, Great Britain. His older brother is obviously a uh, very talented rider in the, kind of in the mould of Wout van Aert, maybe. Um, certainly has been his rival the last couple of years at certain races, including, uh, well, this week at the Dauphiné. But what's, what's really nice to see with Hayter, with Hayter the Younger having so much success is that he almost quit cycling last year um, or in the last couple of years. Um, uh, and he was really struggling with balancing sport and personal life and uh, very nearly called it quits. So, but then he, he moved over to action from DSM and uh, yeah, so he's got back-to-back stage wins uh, the last couple of days. And yesterday's was a more rolling kind of stage like you'd expect his brother to win. Um, whereas today, as Kelly mentioned, it was absolute monster, 183 kilometers and with what, 5,000 meters of climbing, which is, that's a Tour de France stage. Plus, apparently, uh, if I make Joe Lavericks to believe, they have apparently a one hour uphill neutral zone too. <laughs> <laughs> Just as if they weren't doing enough climbing already. Yeah, madness. But also, if you look at second place today, uh, this young chap, Roman uh, Roman Gregoire. Now, he is a name to look out for. He's on the uh, the FDJ Conti team. Um, and this, I mean, I don't want to put weight on him that he doesn't need, but France and French journalists and international journalists are looking at this guy and saying, this could be French, the French hope for the future. If you look at his results, um, one. Oh, since, no. since early April, 
it's ones, twos, threes, couple of twenty fives and thirty fives at flat stages. He's uh, it's yeah. We've as always as we always do at the at the Baby Jira and the Tour de Lavenir. We've got riders who are going to be in the World Tour in the next couple of years. And we're going to be telling stories about them. That that team, uh, the Continental Group, Armand Francis is your team. Past couple of years have absolutely done a sterling job of turning out some really good talent. They've uh, they seem to be, I don't know, they turned a corner recently. Past couple of years where they've just seemed to yeah bringing a lot of not just French riders through, but there's a couple of British lads come through that system um, into the to, into the World Tour ranks. Currently in the lineup on their. The team with a, a, a Pidcock's younger brother as well, so we'll see how he gets on this year at the team. It's interesting that riders like him choose a French squad over uh, any of the other multiple, I suppose, English-speaking development teams like Hagen. Uh, uh, Action Hagen's Berman, yeah. Action Hagen's Berman. Just even just looking through the sort of the GC of of the Baby Giro right now, there's a. It's mostly continental and u23 teams associated with with world tour squads you know dsm is up there ftg is up there uh lotto uh, lotto sudal is up there astana mm-hmm. astana kazakhstan development team is up there I, I mean it's good to see that these world tour squads these big squads are they're clearly putting time and energy and, and effort and money into some of their development programs i mean in theory it works out really well for them you know, does Groupama get first access to Gregoire when when he when he sort of fully turns pro? I, I would think so. Uh, it's also always good to see. I mean, Action Huggins Berman has been around for a very long time. They've done some amazing things with in in develop sort of in that age group, the U twenty three, with developing riders. A ton of uh, incredible riders have come out of that program. Clearly, Leo Hader is is another one. Uh, but yeah, it's mostly they're kind of the only squad there that isn't directly you know with name tied to a, a major world tour squad speaking of uh hagen's action berman uh ireland's own darren rafferty is now on that team as well and performing well at the baby Giro. another name to keep an eye on he's only first year senior but uh, on your point to the the world tour teams with uh development squads the world tour teams can actually take riders up for any race bar a world tour race now so they can sort of you know, take a rider from the on the twenty three team or the feeder team uh, that's associated with their world tour squad, and give them experience in one point ones, one point pro races. Give them you know experience of being on you know a big race with Arno Demar or whoever it happens to be, and you know FDJ. And I think that's also a big thing now in in riders development is that they're you know not only are these riders coming up younger into the world tour ranks but they're also coming up younger and more experienced when they get there which is also you know possibly playing into part of the reason why we see you know so many young riders now performing so well on action uh hagen's berman they and their world tour link or lack thereof they may have a link uh in the near future apparently they have been negotiating with intermarche wanty um gobert uh um which would, yeah, and, and Axel Merckx was quoted saying that some that Wanty would be able to send some of their young riders to do the odd race with Action and then some of the Action Huggins Berman's team, they would, Intermarche would get first divs or at least first negotiation. Yeah, and all that stuff helps 
helps the development pipeline and could potentially help these teams. I mean, we, I mentioned this a couple of times previously, but you know, you don't you don't sort of get the the rider market that happens in some other sports uh, in cycling generally, but it does happen every once in a while. And the sort of one notable exception uh, is the Androni Giacatoli or whatever, whatever the, I don't know what I don't drone hopper. That's what they are. <laughs> That's what they are now. And Gianni Savio. And Savio, over the years, has sold a number of particularly South Americans up to mostly Ineos, let's be honest, uh, and made millions as a result of doing that. And that helps fund his his program going forward and also his excellent taste in suits and footwear. Uh, and I'm assuming that hair is is quite expensive as well. But it's something that doesn't happen all that often in, in cycling. And I think that sort of the professionalization of these development squads can really only be a good thing. And particularly the, the direct line, like you were saying, running the, the direct line into potentially racing bigger races with bigger riders and, and sort of getting that, that experience uh, earlier is a good thing. You know, it, it's worth keeping in mind over the last couple of years, we've had all these incredible young riders, right? Egan Bernal, Tadej Pogacar, who are winning the Tour de France at 21, 22 years old. It's worth keeping in mind that that is not, normal right but that over the entire history of the sport that hasn't been normal we we're in some sort of weird era at the moment uh remco venipole is another one we're in some kind of weird era at the moment where this is suddenly happening a lot more and we've talked a, a number of times i think about why that might be but the reality is that for most riders they're still going to peak at the same time riders have always peaked which is sort of 26 27 28 29 sometimes even later if they're if they're grand tour riders and so that these development pipelines are still crucial, right? You know, making sure that a rider is not burned out at 21 is still crucial. Uh, even if we do have these these smaller examples, uh, this this small group of incredible youngsters, uh, we, that shouldn't sort of tilt our view or, or taint our view of normal development processes, I think. It's, it's an important point, you know, for any young writers actually listening to the podcast here. I had that conversation with a junior locally here yesterday. It's just that, you know, Pogaccia and Remco and Bernal are not the writers to judge yourself by when you get to 17, 18 or 19. Those, they are, you know, they are phenomenons for a reason is because, you know, they're, they're excelling at such a young age, but just, you know, measuring yourself against where those writers were at 18 or any number of other writers where they were at 18 is is irrelevant really everybody develops at a different rate so very good point and the same goes for all those um late 30 year olds trying to uh be the next ludo dirksen <laughs> <laughs> you passed it <laughs> if you haven't made it by 30 try everything yeah maybe try, <laughs> try. Try Everest and go into media. <laughs> yeah, if that, that's it. Thirty was Ludo Dirksen got his contract at the age of thirty with um, uh, who was it? Lamprey. It's not impossible. It's just unlikely. Very, very <laughs> unlikely in today's day and age. All right, all right. We're we're an hour in, y'all. Uh, we need we need to we need to move on here. We had a couple of things on our list here, but I, just frankly, we're just kind of out of time. Because we do need to get to our nerd nugget. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Now, nerd alert. Nerd there's a lot more of this chat in this week's Nerd Alert podcast, uh, which Ronan, I believe, you hopped on this week. But 
we want to talk about some of the bikes that are coming down the pike. Now, we're, we're back to kind of somewhat normal product cycles, I would say. It was, it was very weird product cycles during the pandemic. Well, we couldn't get product. Brands couldn't get their own bikes. They couldn't get drivetrains. It was, it, was, it was a mess. It feels like we're getting back toward normal right now. And we're getting the kind of usual June pile of new bikes that show up just ahead of the tour. Uh, sometimes they show up in the UCI approved frames list. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just show up at the Dauphiné or the Tour de Suisse. Sometimes they don't. Ronan, we've got a ton of them. What what are the ones that you're sort of most excited about that have popped up so far? Just to add to that, sometimes you get an email saying the embargo is in two minutes' time. Here's a new bike coming. Uh, all the, the, there's any number of ways that you can find out about these things. But I, I want to go back to the start of the podcast. And you made it sound like we have direct insight into what's coming. And I will just say, at least as far as I know, more often than not, these things either appear on the UCI list or you spot somebody racing on one. And we have as little information as anybody else does until we write a story about it. And then all of a sudden we get an email saying, here is the details. There is an embargo coming up at such and such a time or date or whatever. So uh, we don't really have any extra. And actually of all the new bikes coming at the moment, uh, although we know when the embargoes are on quite a few of them, we don't actually have any further information uh, in terms of exact details or, or that. Unfortunately, yeah, we just got confirmation that they exist. Yes, we can yes. see with our own eyes anyway. So that's not particularly <laughs> helpful. Well, unless you're no Tom Scoins and you just deny that you're even sitting on a brand new Trek Madone and deny <laughs> his, his existence. Uh, he did the same with the new Trek time trial bike last year. He's very good at not knowing what bike he's sitting on. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so far, just to you know, list them off, you know, kind of briefly, we've got. Two new Cervellos expected. One we will see at the tour is a new Cervelo S5. We've known about that since the classics, but there's also a soloist on the way. There's a new cube that made an appearance at the Giro. No details at all on that yet. Uh, thanks to John Degenkolb, we know about a new Scott Foyle that's coming, and that's a you know a, a actually a significant new redesign on the Scott Foyle. Looks entirely different. Had it not been for John Degenkolb standing in front of it in a DSM jersey, we'd be questioning, you know, which which bike is this even? Uh, no branding, nothing on it. So that that was an interesting one. Colnago then came out last week with their prototypo, proto, prototype, prototypo. Yeah. Does prototypo just mean prototype in Italian? It does, yeah. Uh, so a prototype, prototype? Yeah. They're officially calling it a, a prototype in two different languages. And uh, so we don't know if that's the official name for it or, or if it's going to have a like V4 RS or, or what it's going to be going forward. But basically, Team UAE riders are, are testing five different carbon layups on that frame now. And when that testing is concluded, Conago will settle on a final layup for this new frame and that's what you and i and everybody else will have the option to to purchase going forward at some point in the future um but then i think most interestingly over the past week or so is first of all a new trek madone as i already mentioned um sort of strange looking design big hole in the seat tube where you might expect the seat tube to be uh there is no <laughs> there is no longer a seat tube um potato sized hole yes a potato sized hole <laughs> a sweet potato one of those giant big sweet potato <laughs> holes um so that that sort of made an appearance last week and just like the trek to Mani that we seen back at paru bay this new madone has done away with the iso speed decoupler um which 
I haven't had the pleasure of writing myself, but from everything I've been told, the Isospeed decoupler actually made a significant improvement to the comfort of any bike that it was included on. It was a pretty good system. The drawback of it was it was also quite weighty. Um, so presumably Trek have tried to you know, reduce the weight of this new Madone, keep it as aero, and this potato-sized hole in the seat tube is there to... Um, sort of gain back some of the comfort that was lost by removing the isospeed decoupler. I, I kind of like the fact that Trek are so focused on comfort and their, you know, race bikes. It's it's a big aspect of performance that's quite often overlooked. Uh, and of course, you know, with all sorts of ways now of, you know, getting a bit of compliance back into frames or tires or wheels or whatever. But, you know, it, it is still overlooked in, in favor of aero more often than not. But, you know, Arguably, it could make at least close to the same sort of differences as as aero gains could make. So I, I respect the tracker focusing on comfort so much, but we don't yet have any details as to what this new ISO flow, as we've seen it's been called, will actually offer or, or if it will even work. I have a bit of a mad idea for testing if it will work or not. And I do have a new track my own on the way at some point for review. So I look forward to trying that. And then... Two more frames that made an appearance. Or one made an appearance in the last week, one didn't. Giant Propel made an appearance on the UCI list. Literally zero details about that. No reply from Giant when I reached out to them. Literally, the only thing we know is that a new Giant Propel is coming because it has appeared on the UCI uh, approved frame list. Beyond that, we know nothing, unfortunately. Uh, Giant have been very good at keeping that under wraps. But then over the weekend... Enrique Mass uh, raced on the new Canyon Ultimate, um, which is probably one of the more exciting new bikes to come, given just how long it's been since the last Ultimate update. Uh, there was an update in 2020, I should say, but the last complete redesign was as far back as 2016, I think. So we're going on six years. And as you know, Dave Rome mentioned in Nerd Alert podcast, podcast last week, it hasn't really needed a design update in that time because it was just such a good bike and was so far ahead of its time. But, you know, it is getting one now, and it could be argued for better or for worse uh, remains to be seen. Uh, it seems to have stuck with the sort of lightweight platform that, it, you know, it's renowned for. It, it's it's basically, you know, a racer's bike, but, you know, focusing on lightweight. Um, but it has also moved to fully internal cable routing, for better or worse. Um <laughs> we had a bit of a conversation going in the comments section on this bike over the weekend, and... <laughs> I think it's for better if you're going racing, but if you're not going racing, then yeah, probably not. Uh, but then also potentially more interesting to me is the Canyon have gone for that new integrated cockpit on the Ultimate from the air road that is both adjustable and detachable and uh, all sorts of things going on with that uh, handlebar where you can you can make it wider uh, or you can make it narrower without changing handlebars, but you can also increase the stack height of the you know of of the stem without cutting the fork. So you can drop the height or you can increase the height without cutting or or changing forks, which is a uh, yeah, it's 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 actually quite a handy idea, I guess. You know, it makes sense on paper, but I've never tried it myself, and I'm sort of reserving judgment on it until I do try it myself. And and in theory. They won't break off like they did for Matty Venerpol. Well, so. I think they've fixed that issue now from, from what I've heard. <laughs> yes, that, that issue is very fixed. 
that was an unfortunate, unfortunate turn of events for Canyon at, at that point. Anything else interesting? Well, you know, there there is still this reportedly a new Panarello time trial frame coming. I haven't seen that anywhere yet. Hopefully it makes an appearance at, on the final stage of Tour of Switzerland. Apart from that, just waiting for my inbox to get hit again and the <laughs> ensuing panic to get something written as fast as possible. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I guess, you know, do they, one do other... Do they know it's not an embargo if the embargo is like five minutes from now? That's not an embargo. Well, I, they yeah, just sent us the press release at that point. <laughs> yeah, the, to be fair, they didn't even say that there was an embargo, but, you know, it, it is kind of annoying when you've got your day planned out and then brand new Colonago bike news arrives. It's, yeah, it's it's not great for organization. <laughs> For my organization, I should say. I'm sure they had it well organized and planned, but um they know that you'll drop it and do it anyway. So mm. well, you mentioned the internal cable routing at the on the on the new ultimate. I think we will save that debate for the Nerd Alert podcast. If you want to hear that debate, you guys talked about it this week, didn't you? If you want to hear that debate, head over to that episode. Yeah, we did we did talk about it. Uh, I'm just I'm just trying to remember in my head if we really discussed it you know to the depth that it probably should have been discussed i think i think <laughs> i think we did but at that time we hadn't seen the full you know the full bike we had only seen it one head-on shot um so that, you know the the question that still remained at that point was how many other aero tweaks would this new bike have and now we know the answer is that it has no further aero tweaks which sort of begs the question you know why 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 go for such a controversial one up front if the rest of the bike isn't going to follow suit? Uh, it's like trying to be all things to all people, which is a which is another topic that we discussed with another new bike that appeared on the gravel scene recently on that same Nerd Alert podcast. So uh, we are we're really getting on here. So I'll, I'll, I'll let listeners <laughs> go over to the Nerd Alert podcast to hear that full discussion. Go um, check that one out. I'm sure it's great. I haven't listened to it yet, <laughs> but I'm sure it's great. And that is it from us today. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Cycling Tips podcast. We're going to keep talking Tour de Suisse, keep talking Tour de France. The tour is coming. It's real soon. We got people landing in Copenhagen in what, 15 days? Just about two weeks? It's going to be here before we know it. I think even less than that. It'll make for great listening. We're going to go to Copenhagen and talk about the relegation battle. Uh, every third episode during the Tour de France we just dedicate entirely to how many points everyone has, <laughs> has gotten in the last two days <laughs> outside of the Tour de France yes outside the Tour de yeah. France who, who's, who's winning the non-Tour de France <laughs> relegation <laughs> battle alright thanks for listening everyone we'll be back next week bye bye bye